Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Superhero Movie Club, a community of superhero movie fans. All nerds welcome, but please wipe your feet at the door. I'm your comic book cultured host, Michael Maurer, joined by the movie maestro, James Skyler Houtsmo, and the scientific scholar, Ben Anderson. And also special guest with us today, movie fanatic and reviewer, Andy Simon. Hello. SHMC is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week we continue our journey explain, exploring our favorite subjects, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movie differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the movie. Whether it's uh, money, comic books, music, or science... SHMC talks about it all in this week's episode. Amazing. Oh, thanks. Amazing you didn't black out the entire Western Hemisphere. Hmm? You basically ripped a hole in the fabric of space-time with unspecked components and no supervision. Yeah, that was uh, an accident. And if by accident you upped the power, you would have created a runaway reaction that opened a black hole and swallowed the entire planet. Well, I'm... Glad that didn't happen. Fantastic Four, the remake. And yes, there will be spoilers. If any of you are wondering what has gotten us down today on SHMC in this week's episode, the answer, don't look too far, is 2015's Fantastic Four. And just for you, super fans, we are devoting 40, maybe 50 minutes, I don't know, 20 minutes. Whatever works. If you haven't seen this movie, Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, you probably don't need to. I think it is fair to say that this movie will change your life, for better or for worse. So we're going to go around the table here and recount our experiences with Fantastic Four and tell you how it modified our outlook on life. So please, start us off, Skylar. little preface here. I like to think of myself as someone who is pretty into superhero movies, hence why I'm here talking about them, sharing my insight and or enthusiasm. I like the story structures. I like seeing what different filmmakers can bring to the genre. I like the characters. With that in mind, Fantastic Four 2015 may be the worst superhero movie I've ever seen. And that's with some pretty high uh, competition from the 90s when superhero movies were bad. But Fantastic Four is an anti-movie. It wants to do nothing to entertain you, to make you think. And it's almost like every aspect of its production is there to exist in some strange negative zone of displeasure. About two things in this movie almost work. Everything else is either just a complete flatline bore or a hatchet job from the studio. And it 
couldn't show anymore on screen. Special guest Andy Simon, what did you think of the movie? I still haven't really made up my mind. I've seen the movie twice now. Don't know why I was rejecting myself the second round. And I just look at this movie as, or kind of anti-movie, as Skyler said, very appropriate term. And I just like find it this really interesting uh, pile of mishmash. So it's kind of more like this Frankenstein creation that I'm just like, this is really interesting and I can't turn away. Um, but there's just something about it that keeps bringing me towards it. So I feel kind of like I, I want to be the sole person who's like, look, there's, there's some merit to Fantastic Four. Um, let's, you know, let's just give it another watch. Okay, guys. Okay, guys. And, but you know, it's completely valid for the people who just want to write extremely long websites about why Fantastic Four 2015 is a pile of rubbish. Uh, it's it's just a mess, but it's a mess that I'm going to keep going back to, and I'm probably dumb enough to buy the movie when it hits Blu-ray. And Ben, how did Fantastic Four change your life? I found Fantastic Four 2015 to be a profound spiritual experience for me. Watching it was trans uh, it was it was transcended al- almost almost Zen-like because like you see this movie, you I didn't get angry at it. I didn't even like, I wasn't even like, this sucks and is boring. It just made me sad. And it made me so sad that I came, I came out through the other side. I no longer fear death. I'm the master of my fate and commander of my soul. You know, Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. That's, that's how I feel now because after watching this movie. Oh, you know, you're absolutely right, Ben. I, I I think I went through a very similar experience on this journey. I don't remember how long the movie was, but whatever that time length was multiplied by 10. It's an hour and 39 minutes and oh. some seconds, including credits. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't stick around for those. Several times during this movie, I actually threw my hands in the air. I did say a couple things at the screen since I was one of five people in the theater. Uh, but that many, yeah, that as well. We went as a group, and after sitting through all of all of what Fantastic Four had to offer for us in this year's story, I I went to Perkins with my group, and I looked at a Perkins menu and I said to myself, "Everything is wonderful. Everything on this menu is to die for. Life is worth living." Because I'm no longer in that theater watching that movie. Nobody forced me to see this movie. I went I went through that experience on my own because I wanted to be an informed moviegoer. But then it it crushed my soul. I was not I was not mad at the film. I was for a small amount of time, but quickly I became depressed because this is how the world is going to see Fantastic Four for the next Three years, maybe? Two? I don't know how long Fox is going to wait until they rip out a new one. Uh, but that is, I felt the weight of the, the community of people who just want people to enjoy superhero movies is a huge setback. This is the first setback since, like, Green Lantern. We'd gone, we'd gone four good years. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe Ghost Rider 2 or Jonah Hex. I forget which of those three came first, but, oh boy. This, this was not a movie. This was, this was a journey. 
can I, can I talk about one part that I legitimately liked? Oh um, yes, yes. Let us yeah, let us all just take a quick moment to say one positive thing about Fantastic Four. There were a couple laugh out loud one liners. Uh, for ex- well, there's one in particular. It's when some like uh, like your default military executive dude is talking about the thing. And he's like, he's been highly, like, highly successful at covert operations, and it's a, it's like on screen is a video of of the thing throwing a tank. And I was like, <laughs> covert. <laughs> it reminded me of um the Adam West Batman movie right at the end when they're like in a room with a bunch of people who can all hear them talking, and he's like, quickly, Robin, let's leave inconspicuously through the window, you know. <laughs> Just one of these laugh out loud, complete disconnect between the dialogue and what was happening on screen. I loved it. I like uh, Reg E. Kathy as an actor, who's the guy who played uh, Doctor Storm. Um, the very brief period of time when they come from the negative zone and the body transformation thing that Mr. Trank was just like so adamant about that. He was like so enthusiastic. Um, you see these kind of lingering shots of, uh, Johnny storm's body just on fire. You have Reed Richards unknowingly stretching himself. Um, so that kind of like two minutes right there out of that whole hour and 39 minute movie, I think was pretty much like fantastic, pure perfection. Uh, and if they had just like held on to that, for maybe you know five minutes more or something, uh, that could have helped a little tiny bit, in my opinion. If they had gotten Cronenberg to actually direct this movie, yeah, <laughs> I'd watch the I'd watch the shit out of a Cronenberg Fantastic Four. The, yeah, this this movie was way more like surprisingly gruesome. I I did enjoy the the very the only time we saw actual action outside of the very last scene. When Reed is fighting those those troops in the woods, I enjoy the little like the quick little zooms and the swaps that he makes when he he just like stretches himself. You know, maybe the effects weren't the greatest, but I don't I didn't really I thought it was really creative and cool when he just like stretched his body all the way to one side so that some buckshot passed through him and went to another guy, and then Ben just comes down and headbutts him, and I was like, lame! Why is this over in two minutes? No, I wanted at least five more minutes of that. At least. And just, just things were just cut too short to be replaced by boring, somber dialogue. That scene you were just describing reminds me of a scene in 1995's The Mask with Jim Carrey, where he's getting shot at by gangsters and he's just bouncing up and down. Only that shit was fun, and this one was... Well, it was fun for the very limited amount of time. I think the mask was able to replace it with more fun is the thing is it kept going. Whereas after that scene, we get Ben and Reed or like, I don't know. Was it Ben and Reed talking? Just look, you had to look at miles Teller's awful facial hair for another eight minutes. It was gross. (laughs) He looked like he just like paper. He just super glued some strands of hair onto his face. Somehow his facial hair is more disgusting than the scene where he actually, like, morphs his face from another guy's face. Oh, definitely. Okay, speaking of morphine, let's uh, talk about how we need it and how the studios need morphine to deal with the amount of money that this movie brought in, or lack thereof. 
Oh, God. The streets of Hollywood must have ran red after this movie came out. Fantastic Four was made on a production budget of $120 million. So they kept those coins in their purse. We'll just say that. They just Domestic- had to make the film. Right. Yeah, I think that was their main concern with this film. As of this recording, it has brought in $55.8 million in the U.S., $108 million.2 elsewhere for a worldwide earning of $164 million. Yeah, that's not just underperforming. That's being a big old tank. Um, little fun fact about it. Uh, it still hasn't grossed in the U.S. what the first Fantastic Four movie from 10 years ago made in its first weekend. It's made less than half that movie worldwide, and it's the uh, second biggest estimated loser this summer behind uh, Disney's Tomorrowland. Well, now, reports say that a large contributor to why it lost so much money was, and I, I think you, you might be able to explain this better, Skyward, is, is the director, Josh Trank, released that tweet out. He sent that tweet out that, that basically said that the studio held too much of an iron grip over him, and it resulted in a product that he was not proud of. And, you know, just just lamenting over the what could have been of this movie before it even got released. So, uh, and then, and then you know, that tweet got taken down in less than nine minutes, but all you need is nine seconds to immortalize that thing. And it just, it made everybody go, okay, why am I going to spend 10 bucks to watch this movie if the director didn't even think it was good? Exactly. Uh, the incident you're talking about uh, occurred actually the night it opened. So that would be uh, August 6th, I want to say. Uh, Trank tweeted out something to the effect of the movie I had a year ago was great and it wouldn't be getting these reviews. Um, you, you know, you'll probably never see that. Yada, yada. I think it was only out on the interwebs for nine minutes, but they took that down, and it was estimated that that tweet alone cost the movie upwards of $10 million in its opening weekend. Just an estimation. and That's, that's an estimation. Yeah, and still, though, that's just one word. One, 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 one 144 less than characters set of words that financially damaged this film for about at, at least almost 10% of its earnings. <laughs> That's why PR is a thing. <laughs> that, is the, that is the reason that you have confidentiality agreements. This is why you should agree, you should you know pay attention in English class in high school so that you learn that words have power, man. And now we move on to some history behind the film, some some comic book history where where the story of this film stems from. But first, I'm going to take a little bit of a derail and talk about the core of each member of the Fantastic Four. Because I don't think it was very well perceived in the film, and I think a lot of very deep comic book nerds <laughs> such as me will, will, will agree in that there is every Fantastic Four member has a purpose, has an identity, and you're allowed a little leeway, of course, when dramatizing it, when remodifying it to a different medium. But what we have first is you have Reed Richards, 
He is the emotionally distant genius. Possibly the leader of the group. I mean, it's just sort of implied. And he is, he falls for Sue Storm originally because she's the girl, but later because she becomes one of the most well-developed comic book characters in history. And Reed's main big emotional pull to the group is that he is tremendously guilty for what his, his scientific intuition or his, his scientific sense of adventure and curiosity cost Ben his human body. Ben Grimm has become this rocky thing all because Reed said, buddy, don't you trust me? And Ben said, yes. And Reed messed up. So then after that, you have Sue Storm, who is a character who loves her little brother, who falls for Reed's giant brain and is his ability to, to solve any problem if he, if he puts his mind to it. And I'm assuming because of Reed Richards heart. I mean, there aren't a lot, a whole lot of stories that deal with the kindness of Reed Richards. And then there's, and then there's Johnny, who's of course the kid. And he teases everyone and surprises people with his ability to sacrifice himself and, and get serious. And finally there is Ben Grimm, the ever loving blue eyed thing, who is like a poster boy for depression, kind of, because he's got this rocky, impenetrable outside, but on the inside, he's this, He's this caring and gentle soul who's just who's tortured by what he's lost since he's become this thing, but does tries to make the most out of it, tries to help the most amount of people. So that makes Reed the brains, Ben the heart, Johnny the comedian of the group, and Sue, who was first written to be the girl because it was kind of the, the sexist 60s when the comic book came out, but later becomes the glue of the team. She is she's the the. She is mother to all the all the boys, and she is possibly the strongest female comic book character in history because one of her ability to love Reed, who is identified, who is almost without a doubt a sociopath. Two, one of the few superheroines to become a mother of not one but two superpowered children. One is a super genius, and the other is practically a god. So please point me to the handbook that deals with that sort of coming of age. And three, she went from being the weakest of the four with her power to just turn invisible until later she gained the power of force fields, which made her easily the strongest because she can make force fields appear in your windpipe or she can lobotomize you by putting for by asphyxiating your brain by just simply blocking channels. So the Fantastic Four is a family unit. All of these characters work together, they go on adventures, they all love each other, and there's this 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 great charm and care between everybody's everybody's role in the group. The movie didn't really do that. It touched okay on Reed's guilt with Ben. Uh I'd say it was the only thing, but Sue ended up showing up as just the girl again. It's like we went back in time to the nineteen fifties and she didn't really do any she didn't even get to go on the trip to the to the negative zone the planet zero whatever planet zero yeah she was on the outside why why wasn't ben Grimm on the outside because he doesn't know anything about science arguably outside of what he's learned from reed it was and so what you what you have is you you modify these characters too much to where they're unrecognizable and they lose all of their charm the the story was supposed to be the, the story for the film was supposed to be based on the ultimate Fantastic Four run, 
in 2004 when Fantastic Four got rebooted into a new universe called the Ultimate Universe with uh, with writers such as Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Miller, and Warren Ellis writing stories for them. The really good books for like 1 through 20 are um, amazing. I actually recommend them to anyone who enjoys science fantasy adventures. These are prime science fantasy adventure comic books. Uh, it dealt a lot with how, you know, they all come together, read going to the, to the negative zone is what they call it. Not in the, in the comic books, not planet zero. I don't know why they called it that in the movie. Um, and the negative zone is just supposed to be this alternate dimension that is essentially an older universe, a dying universe. And it, and it's because it's an older universe, it has so much different radiation. And when they got exposed to that, it gave them, of course, superpowers. And, and all of these characters were a bit younger too than Reed and Sue being the mother and father team. They were, you know, kind of in their later twenties, early thirties in the comic book. And so that's, that's really what the movie takes its launching point from, but then goes in a completely different direction with, with conflict. Because I don't even know what was the main conflict of the film throughout half the, the movie. Was it the military-industrial complex? Uh, Doctor Doom showed up being a mustache twirler. Yeah, at the very and we all we all assumed Doctor Doom would come back at the end and you know mess people up. We didn't really know why he hated everyone outside of the fact yeah, he was like some weird hippie fighter who you know like hated the world because uh, the old people poisoned it and <sighs> is it some social social freedom fighter of some sort i don't know who's just angry at everything there's been articles about the use of the military industrial complex as the go-to villain for any number of movies superhero movies especially we saw it earlier in uh, ant-man and avengers pretty much too uh but it's hardly even a force because it's so underdeveloped and it's just kind of there. Well, they, it's such an easy villain because it's the, it's the argument that apparently everyone can acquiesce to of we created something wonderful and now the government is swooping in to take it and use it as a weapon for defense. And it, we hardly ever see the justification from the government's perspective because we don't care because we need a villain. And so this movie does it by, <laughs> by you know, the government takes them and uses them as a weapon, but they don't fight back. Uh, they like Ben accepts it because he's depressed. Okay. Johnny accepts it because he wants to continue using his powers. Sue hates everything about it, but doesn't do anything. And Reed, instead of being smart and working on the inside of it, he's moving very slowly in the Brazilian outback, I, building his machine way slower than if he would if he had government resources. And I just, there's so much about this film that made me wonder what, what was the foundation? The foundation was David Cronenberg's uh, 1983 film, The Fly which is about a brilliant young scientist who develops teleportation, but it goes wrong and he has all these horrible deformities and he has to deal with that. Yeah, this is very Cronenberg, but it just fell flat. And it was yeah. it's just, like you said, like all the characters are just kind of there, like a, like a desk lamp. They don't, yeah, there's, no, there's no drive. When, when Sue and Reed talked, 
had conversations, I cringed because I didn't know what they were saying to each other because it didn't sound like what people would say to each other. Granted, in the movie, they're supposed to be like both sociopaths, like Reed, Sue, and Victor Von Doom are all sociopaths. And, and so, of course, those conversations are supposed to be awkward, but they're trying to make it seem less awkward and that there's driving towards a romantic relationship, which did that even happen? Did I did no. that even progress no. into anything? No. Did anything happen in this movie? I don't think so. Yeah, they never got to use their powers against anything until the very last 10 minutes. And Doom, they got rid of, okay, here's the one thing I'm going to say about that, that Tony Kebbell, who, who played Victor Von Doom, he is great at emoting through his face. That is where that actor shines. Yes. Um, and that is why he played Koba in the Planet of the Apes recent movies. He just they put some motion capture stuff on his face, and he played a great angry chimp. What they do at the end, when, when he's supposed to come to his fruition as Doctor Doom, when he is supposed to become the opposing force to these four characters, they get rid of his face, his ability to show his emotional drive in the film. They just they throw it out the window and replace it with a mask, which that, that's what Doom is. He has a mask. But even comic book artists know that you can modify a mask to look angry, to look somber. It's like they never learn their lesson from the very first Spider-Man movie when they get Willem Dafoe, whose face is a nightmare factory, and then just slap a big old plastic chunk on it, and it's like, oh, hey, you'll be just as effective in this, and no. Well, that, and it's, it's very similar of what they did in the first two Fantastic Four films. I was expecting an answer to why uh, Julian McMahon put on that mask, and then nothing happened. You don't get to see... The the, the the struggle is we we get that we want we want to feel for the heroes in in these movies that's true but at the same time there has to be a convincing opposing force and that is really the biggest downside of all the recent comic book movies and we've continued to talk about it on every episode is the villains are so poorly developed you can only create something fantastic if it has something even more fantastic and justifiable to go up against. And, and with a name like Doctor Doom, you expect a, a certain amount of you know destroy the world mustache twirling. But there, just because he's like comic book evil doesn't mean he can't be well written and convincing. Like I've, I started watching Game of Thrones. There's a lot of mustache twirlers in that show. Yes, but they're all really interesting. You understand their motivation. Give me a, a damn comic book movie with a villain who has a clear motivation. Uh. Dark Knight? He's just a mad dog. But like, yeah, here. He's I, I have the perfect understandable, and he gets you on your, his side, so... Yeah. I, I have the perfect answer to this. Marvel's Daredevil. Yes. Ooh. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Okay. That is that is where the... you you like At this point, we have so many superhero movies that all tell relatively the same tale... And have all of their protagonists affect against go up against the same conflict and antagonist that we just want to see a villain movie at this point. We we 
we want to see two opposing forces from the same side. We want to know. We don't want to know who the protagonist of the show is, and that's and so we are gonna get, we're gonna recommend on Fantastic Four that everybody just watch Daredevil again because that show is amazing. And and David Cronenberg's The Fly. Yes, or in the original Fly is very good too. Uh, do do Scanners too by Cronenberg. That'll that'll be <laughs> a Fly and Scanners are what this movie wanted to be. Yeah, it's very true. There was uh, there was a brief moment of Scanners for some freaking reason oh i'm gonna i've went too long about comic books but there's there's just a lot to say about what this i just trying to understand what this movie was trying to do with these 60 70 year old characters and not being able to figure it out listeners if you have some help for me please we get that the studio's motivation was to make a movie to not lose the license, but the studio has to understand that they have to still make a good enough movie to make money that people want to see. So I'm just I don't want to think that Fox is an idiot or the Fox people at Fox are idiots because uh, they wouldn't have jobs. I mean, come on. Uh, I'd like to think that they're just there's something that is not being understood. There's some miscommunication. Someone they're baking a cake and someone's bringing eleven eggs and no one told anyone to get any flour. So I, that's just what this this movie is in a food metaphor. You're welcome, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Skyler, give me a different topic now. Talk about the music of the film and if it if it's good. <laughs> Will do. Um, fortunately, the music for Fantastic Four is an element of the film that didn't fall completely on flat on its face. Not spectacular, not going to you know, win any awards or anything, but if any part of the movie came close to actually being um, easily accepted or even enjoyed, it's probably the music, actually. Uh, score this time done by Marco Beltrami, who up till this point on this podcast has had the distinction of delivering the blandest superhero score we've listened to thus far with the Wolverine. And, oh, no. Yes. Thankfully, this is not that. But he is joined, actually, by Philip Glass, who is a shocking addition to this movie, I would say, because Philip Glass is, like, a brilliant minimalist composer for all different types of mediums. So how the hell they got him on this movie is beyond me. I am surprised. Like, I, there, there were parts where I was like, ooh, I'm getting a Philip Glass vibe. Did they just lift this directly from Koyaanisqatsi? Um, <laughs> I think that's like the, that's like the third or fourth time I've referenced that, that movie on this, on this show. He's a god of 20th century contemporary classical music. I don't get why he's attached to such a shit film. I have no idea, but let's hear what the pairing of these two delivered with the uh, first track on the list for today, which is Fantastic Four Prelude. Cue it up.
Is anyone else getting a Nightmare Before Christmas vibe from that clip? I'm guessing... I'm, I got a Koyana Scotsy vibe for about two bars, and then, yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas. I think Philip Glass phoned it in on this project just as much as everyone else, because there, there, there are some arpeggios in there that are definitely in Koyana Scotsy. I've seen that movie like six times, so I'd know. Yeah, just those... Um, just the like woodwind runs there, like that's such a Philip Glass sound. And then the rest of the score is, you know, your typical kind of like pulsating rhythm underneath it, like way down there. But I think just the fact that Philip Glass was involved and his little bit of genius that was going on here, I think he gets a little more credit than just you know phoning it. Philip Glass phoning it in is still Philip Glass. Let's take another uh, listen to a track, Building the Future. Was that montage music? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's when they're uh, putting together the teleporter or whatnot. There were at least like three montages in this film. Oh yeah, and usually that's a good thing, unless you know you don't have any weight or depth to uh, to back them up. So for the, the final one I've got here is strength in numbers during the awful Tacton finale. Take a listen to that. I do like when they try and, you know, make that, that very quick, rapid sound at the end to kind of make it sound a lot like a horror film. But I really, I really don't like being reminded of that final scene in the film. Just because sitting in the theater, I sat and thought to myself, okay, here's your one redemptive moment. Please, Doom has them at wit's end. They're all down. Please don't let someone say, if we all attack him at once, we might have a chance. There's no victor anymore. Only doom. That's fine. I didn't. That's that's it's a cliche line, but I can I can I can let that one pass because it it's I think it's more of a, a, a sounded very comic booky. But <laughs> when when the 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 plot resolving mechanic is just them going, we must work as a team. It's like, oh, what were the first two Fantastic Four films? Did I miss something? Are you making something new? 
it's almost like there's a theme here that they can't stop beating us over the head with. That there are four of them, and they all yeah. do different things? We get it! Well, I'm glad I brought back that wonderful memory for you. Uh, <laughs> any more any more music topics you want to talk about? Um, what the, this, is, this is certainly improvement, actually, from Marco Beltrami's Wolverine soundtrack. Um, but I'm 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 not gonna say it's 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 that much of a step up. <laughs> How about this? If you want a really good Marco Beltrami soundtrack, go listen to the music from Snowpiercer, a movie that came out last year with uh, Chris Evans. That is a good s- score. Like that, you can listen to on its own and be like, "Wow, this is some good stuff." That's awesome. I love Snowpiercer. That's a great film. Ish. It's 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 a it's a great film if your ability to suspend your disbelief is pretty high. Hence sci-fi. Yes, sci-fi. It's a good sci-fi film. All right. I'll say this, that I think this score would have worked on a better movie. I agree. Wholeheartedly. <laughs> in, in, in that I think it just got – I think the quality of it just gets brought down with the fact that it just does not mix. Because nothing mixed in this film. Uh, not, they Nothing nothing mixed well. It was It was all eggs, no flour. This the score is so much brighter and you know more traditionally superheroic than what's going on in screen on screen, which just tries so hard to be dour and self serious and like grounded to the point where you don't even recognize what you're watching anymore. Okay, all right, we're gonna move on to science, Ben. There's a lot of fun. Th- things to talk about here because even as someone who does not understand scientific concepts to a collegiate level which i do not i can very much recognize when this movie is trying to throw something over my head and failing yep what do you what do you want me to talk about pick one uh quantum teleportation i or teleportation i guess um real life teleportation is not possible um the closest we have is called quantum teleportation which is basically you create a pair of of particles with certain properties and basically if you know the property of one you'll know the other so there's a a quantity called the electron spin so if you create a pair of electrons that you know have opposite spins and then you send them in opposite directions randomly you read one you know the other but then if you change the first one, it'll also change the spin on the second one. Why does that happen? Do we know? Well, because uh, electron spin is a conserved quantity, and if so you change um, if you change it, there has to be a corresponding change somewhere else. Ooh. It's it's um the 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 what the physicists call it is it's uh physicists call it spooky action at a distance. Mm. Um so basically you can teleport in air quotes uh information that is encoded in different states of a particle but you can't teleport monkeys yeah that's fine uh well i mean teleportation is a is a staple mark of of sci-fi and 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 let that go can you can you can you talk about just the basic scientific process and how it was abused in this film yeah so Okay, so the scientific method is you have a theory 
you test it and gather evidence for it. And actually what you're usually doing is you're trying to prove it wrong because that's easier to do. Um, and then other scientists will check your work. And then once they find that there's not any problems with it, they'll be like, okay, this is probably right. Uh, what you don't do is you build a thing, send a monkey through it, have it work once and say, okay, let's send humans through it. Oh my because God. anyone can get something to work once. But before you send humans through it, you want it to be working every time. Yeah, the like the whole thing is like if someone dies in a testing process, bye bye government funding, unethical. Uh, and so when that when they all clapped like, oh, the monkey's alive, it's fine. First of all, you said it's fine because you're only looking at it for about three seconds. You have not quarantined that thing after it's been to a different dimension. Right. Yeah. Who who's to say it doesn't have you know plutonium leprosy? So yeah. many microbes. Which, which is worse than which is worse than biblical lep leprosy. Yeah, yeah. The Andromeda strain could come right up to your front door because you said the monkey is fine in three seconds, and yeah. the very next thing they say is, "All right, we're we're ready for human testing." No, you're not. No, I the the best analogy I can think of is when you're testing a drug, you have to like do a lot of science before you test it on humans, so that we know that it's going to be more or less safe. Yeah. And somewhat effective. Also, they built that thing. Like, why is the design specifically for four people? Uh, that never because got the really plot big. demands it. Because okay, fine. That's that's warranted. The plot did demand it. And can we can we talk about? Uh, I'm assuming scientists, uh, at least most of them, have a pretty keen danger sense of when of when things are probably uh, going to hurt you. So. Uh Especially like actual chemists and physicists are like, ooh, a like a, a flask of something I have no idea what it is. Let's just leave it under the fume hood and ask whoever's working on that project what it is. You don't just go up and start messing with another chemist's stuff because it could kill you. Yeah. So okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let them I'm gonna give them as much leeway as I can because this scene was easily the turning point of when this movie could not take a step back of when they they all decide that they're going to go to planet zero. All right. So I understand that you're in this building because you practically live here 24 uh, seven. You have access to everything because that's when your lab coats on a project, you don't work eight to five. You, you work as the project demands it. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. You're there overnight. You're getting drunk with your fellow coworkers. Yeah. Someone says, Screw the <laughs> nobody remembers the guy that sent that sent Neil Armstrong to the moon. They only remember Neil Armstrong. <laughs> okay. Uh first of all, there was like a team of people that did that. It wasn't just one person. So don't don't make that the basis of your argument. I don't care how drunk you are. And then they all some who I don't know who triggers it in the movie, but they go, Let's do it. Let's just do it. We've already covered the fact that Reed Richards is a sociopath, right? Ah, yeah. I guess every yeah. I think I think Johnny should have been the trigger. Okay, so they're all drunk, and they all uh, uh, suspension of belief here. They're all drunk. They all decide they're going to go to this foreign land that they expose them to all sorts of dangerous things that they've only tested once, and somehow they have complete access to do this without triggering any alarms outside of Sue's computer. No one on the base is like, oh, energy siphon. That's weird. <laughs> Someone should shut that down. Uh, and But they get Ben to go with them. 
How? Why? Ben. Because the plot demands it. Oh. How did you go with them? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh. And he's just, he just wakes up, drives there, sees that they are drunk, does not care, decides to do this because he trusts Reed, and then Sue doesn't even get to go along because she's the girl, or whatever reason. That's just the reason everybody assumes, because why wasn't Sue allowed to go when she knows probably the most about this project? She's been she's the only one who's been working on it the longest. That's actually a fact in the movie, besides Dr. Franklin Storm. I was very upset. And then they get there and they climb this, the freaking cliff and they step on that molten surface. What would you describe, yeah. you describe that, Ben? Cronenbergian. Cronenbergian surface. And it is not solid. And they're like, let's just keep going. And then Von Doom pulls a Prometheus and just goes down to the little, you know, electric lava it's like, what is this? You can only find out by touching it. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, this movie was really poorly written. Yeah, like, yeah. You start with a bad script and then it uh, doesn't get any better. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's a lot of rants that, that are going to come out of me because of this film. Because, because you have to realize when you're filming that, that someone's got to – someone in power has to say – this doesn't work. Like, this obviously does not work. And it's okay if that happens once. Like, I was willing to accept that the movie could get better if you really needed to push past the point of how they got their powers. It is very difficult to accept how four people could put themselves in danger, five people could put themselves in danger, and then they would get superpowers out of that. But once you get past that, hopefully a good movie will come about. No. Not happening. Ah. Uh. Uh, any more science you want to talk about, Ben? Any other things that they did? Oh, nah. I don't really... I'm done with this movie. Yeah. All right. So, I know you've been hanging back there, Andy. How's how's the, how's the your fine corner? <laughs> it's going very well. I'm enjoying listening to the rants. Oh, good. So, we're going to give you some, some time to extrapolate on some, maybe some behind the scenes on this film. Some fun facts. Uh, so, like, well, 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 first of all, what what do you love about uh, superhero movies? Like, why why take such an interest in them? Got to got to know why you're on the show, buddy. I, I blame it all on Batman. Uh, when I grew up, I was watching the Batman animated series, and next to wanting to be Neil Diamond, I wanted to be Batman. Uh, so, from that moment on, I kind of I'm very much like a character person first and foremost. So I'm like all in love with uh, the darkness of Batman and the, like the mythos that come with that. I kind of tolerate Superman. I'm really mostly a DC guy, and I've only recently become a Marvel person uh, thanks to the MCU. But I pretty much love the stories uh, because I grew up reading a lot about you know Greek myths. So you know this is our generation's myths and legends that's you know hopefully going to be around for like another hundred several hundred years. So it's just like enjoying these stories, um, not counting the some of the kind of ridiculous things that go on in the comic book world. Uh, it's it's really fun. So talk to me about what you know about how the Fantastic Four was made. Um, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of rumor and little fact so it's kind of going to be a little mesh of here 
What we do know is that Fantastic Four had a, had about as much tinkering and cooks in the pot as uh, last year's Amazing Spider-Man 2. And we all know how well that turned out for that film. Mixed. Mixed reviews. <laughs> <laughs> Just so much that's going to cut out, man. Give Skyler a chance to defend that movie, and he will. Actually making its budget back? Yeah, see, there it is. All right. Sick All right. burn. <laughs> Next up. Movies getting made, it's usually like somebody who is like really enthused about an idea, and they come to the studio, and they're like, hey, I'm really enthused. Would you give me the money to make this movie? And the studio says, I'm simultaneously extremely uh, enthused by this. I'm going to give you money and make it. Um, as you guys already know, that's not the case here. Uh, Fox was pretty much more like, hey, our seven years is almost up. We need to put a movie in development. When, you know, studios purchase the rights to develop something from another, you know, like a, a brand, they have a finite amount of time to execute that movie. Like, I think it was 2007, the last time uh, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer came out. And it's like around 2012. And they were like, man, we only have a couple years left before our rights on this lapse. We need to put something in development. Um, because as in that seven-year span, you have to have something in development. And you could have that movie come out on the eighth year. That's still you know, legally okay for those guys. Um, so around 2012, you have Josh Trank making quite a name for himself with Chronicle. Pretty decent film. Really cool. Um, and Trank had his whole Cronenberg idea, which we've talked about extensively here. And he basically brought it to Fox and said, this is my idea. And he teamed up with a guy named Jeremy Slater, who is a self-professed huge Fantastic Four fan. And together with Trank's idea and Slater's knowledge, they came up with the script that we now have. And I don't know how that translated to what we got. Um, kind of along the way, we had Simon Kinberg. So... The interesting thing about this is that we know, like, and I bring up the Spider-Man 2 analogy here because there are so many things that we know that were, uh, it was wrote, written and actually shot, uh, because we see it in trailers or we see it in behind the scenes footage. There's all these things that were made for a movie that when it came out, it wasn't there at all. So as far as Fantastic Four is concerned, we know from B-roll footage that there were scenes with the gang involving the Fantastic Car. And there was in the, like the three of the trailers, there was a nighttime air raid involving the thing uh, coming down, causing mass amounts of destruction, some beautiful cinematography there. And we get like just snippets of more character driven beats between like uh, Sue, Johnny and Reed. Whatever happened to that footage of thing dropping out of the plane and landing because that was such a trailer beat. In yeah. every trailer, they loved using that footage. Right. And, like, that was their money shot they continually wanted to, like, sell the movie on. And you watch the movie, and it's like, where is it? That was so cool. I want context. Um, another kind of interesting thing is that not only were scenes cut, but a whole character was changed. Um, Tim Blake Nelson, who we should know from The, uh, the Incredible Hulk. I think he was Mr. Blue. Um, he was originally hired uh, to perform the role of, quote-unquote, eccentric scientist Henry Elder, who apparently in the comics is a villain, uh, the Mole Man. So he was cast, and he actually performed the role of Henry Elder, and I'm assuming through reshoots, he just became generic red shirt government asshole number one. 
Well, they changed his name to to I believe it was it was Harvey Elder, and then they changed it to Harvey Allen for some reason. And did anyone else get extremely upset with his yes. ability to chew cud for yes. like fifty minutes out of the entire film? Yes. What what was that? Is that is that naturally what Tim Blake Nelson does, or was he doing that as a character thing? I think that was a quote unquote character thing. God, was it was it chewing tobacco? I, I think it was gum. Was it? It was just gum. Yes. Ugh, Tim Blake Nelson, you have you have great potential in the world. Why do you squander it with chewing gum as a character plot? Can we can we get onto the topic right now of what? What was happening behind the scenes of this film between Josh Trank and everyone else? Because there's a lot of speculation and rumors. What what reported has been has been fact? Because there are horror stories dealing with how he treated uh, Susan Storm actress Kate Mara, how he treated uh, actors in, in in controlling how they should blink and breathe on screen. Okay, I'll be the rumor mill here. Right around the time the movie came out, just all these reports from like Hollywood Reporter, Variety, all this stuff uh, came about the drama that was going on behind the scenes at Fantastic Four, much of which uh, was kind of leveled at Josh Trank. A lot of reports, you know, kind of taking more Fox's stance, others being like, you know, more defensive of Trank. What seems to be pretty agreed upon was that. Fantastic Four was not made for the right reasons in that, yes, you know, they needed to get the the rights back and whatnot. From the sounds of it, uh, Trank's vision for the movie, the gloomier ground, I don't believe he made out, set out to make it gloomy, more grounded, but that's how it came out. Gloomy, grim, uninteresting. That his vision, something Fox thought was going to work. No one else did when it came time to uh, executing it. He couldn't pull it off, and he became very antisocial, aggressive, whatever, between his uh, actors. Like I said, uh, he supposedly treated Kate Mara very badly. Uh, him and Miles Teller almost got in a fist fight over uh, his uh, direction or lack thereof. And uh, in between takes, he'd be going back to his trailer, not communicating with everyone, just shutting himself out. And then there was the whole thing about how uh, he did, like, I think $100,000 worth of damage to a house that had been rented to him during shooting. So It's crazy, because that's, that's the kind of stuff that, like, <laughs> it simply intrigues me about the film, because something went off the rails in this project. Something and and due to contractual obligations, everything still had to get pushed forward. And right. how much got damaged out of Josh Trank's like everyone else's career and like because I, I think everyone can bounce back from this. I don't think there's ever something you can't really bounce back from, perhaps in the superhero world. But but it's certainly damaging. It's going to be a very long time before Josh Trank can bounce back from this. Just between his reputation on set, those damages, the fact that it lost him pretty much the uh, gig directing one of the new Star Wars movies, and not to mention that tweet that you know put him on the wrong side of basically all of 20th Century Fox. 
I would be very surprised if he works in big budget Hollywood ever again. Now, was this his second film? After um, was this he directed Chronicle, and then he went to this. I want to say he might have had one more before Chronicle. You know, just a micro budget affair, but it's a big jump, done, though. Yeah, it is. It's it's big from going, you know, from peanuts to uh, 120 million. It's a lot of pressure. Um, okay. So, so Andy, could you could you pick us up on uh, the future of the Fantastic Four? One word. Cloudy. When Fantastic Four was first released back in August, the you know interviewers kept asking, okay, so what do you think is going to happen next? And Simon Kinberg, who is pretty much going to be the only guy if Fantastic Four 2 moves forward who will still be involved, tranks out. Uh, Slater has other projects. He was talking about how he still has his eyes set on Fantastic Four. He was still actively developing it, maybe like in a treatment level, but certainly not in a script level. And as time has gone on, uh, you know, Kinberg has still kind of maintained, well, we're thinking about Fantastic Four too, but nothing has been decided for certain on Fox's uh, side. As it sounds, purely in Rumorville speak, is that... Fox is actually very in love with the footage they've seen of Deadpool. And so in lieu of a a Fantastic Four 2, they might just make a Deadpool sequel for that time period. So as of right now, I think this is probably a one and done for this gritty, moody Fantastic Four world. At least for another seven years. So tell me, uh, answer me these two questions if you know. Question number one, are... The crew or the cast members still contractually obligated to participate in the sequel if it does get greenlighted? I believe Kate Mara has said as such, yes, they are obligated to return. And at least from what I remember from what she said, she's actually excited to work with her castmates again. So at least they got along well. Okay. Well, let's see. I always just say it as moving forward. All right. This didn't work. And what the studio really wants to do is to put it behind them. And I honestly like it's best for everyone to just put it behind you <laughs> because I, there's no one to really point definitively a finger at. It was a, a mess of communications. There was a lot of problems, whether you side with Fox or whether you side with Josh Trank, it didn't matter. This movie got, got made, it got distributed and it, it was in nobody's best interest that, that either of those happened. <laughs> um, so does does what is the possibility then? And I know there's a lot of talk because before uh, Fox and Sony held on to their Marvel comic book properties with iron fists, but since Sony has made this Spider-Man deal in lieu of recent events, does this open up the possibility that Fox will be negotiating with Marvel Studios as to create a similar deal? Any rumors there? I'm happy to eat my own words if this comes to fruition, but I really don't think that's going to happen. I think Fox is going to hold on with dear life to what they own because that just kind of comes across as who they are as a company. Okay. Um, so that looks like it's going to do it today. Then super fans, superhero movie club is recorded and produced by tribe cop productions. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes, our main distributor and give us a five star rating, non-negotiable. Uh, four star, right, nope, three, right out, two. You might as well be just stabbing us in the heart. One, 
you are uh, you're dead to us if you if you write us a one star review. Uh, just uh, just one star one star review. Why are you still listening to us now? Yeah, really. Why why would you take the time? Uh, I, I, because we've offended you. I just move on. It's the one person who who loves this movie. You know, I found I found there are two types of people who 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 liked Fantastic Four when I brought it up. One is you are either counterculture, and just because everyone says they hate it, you should say that you like it. And two is it's like the only movie they've ever seen. Like we're done. We're done talking about Fantastic Four. Ben, carry us on. Yeah, but it, it, we're done talking about Fantastic Four today, but if you want to keep talking to us about Fantastic Four, uh, you should check out our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash superhero movie club. If you have any facts about the movies or just anything, you know, if you want to say, hey, you were like completely off base, this movie's good, let us know. We're there. We'll be listening. We'll, we'll post it, post it, we'll post the show notes to this episode, and then right underneath that, Go ahead and write anything you want about uh, the show that you found either agreeable or the opposite of. And let's start a Twitter war about Fantastic Four at Superhero MC. Uh, contact us there. Send us your questions, comments, suggestions, and we'll all, in all likelihood, use them on the air. Actually, if you do send us a very compelling argument through either Reddit or Twitter, about the positive aspects of Fantastic Four, I can almost guarantee I will contact you and give you a time to shine on the show. Just because I'm very curious as to like what can be done to salvage this movie. What can be said about humanity <laughs> through this film and positive. But that'll do it today for today's episode. I'm your host, Michael Maurer. James Keller Hutzma. And Ben Anderson. And Andy Simon. Hello. Goodbye. <laughs> and I hope you all have a super week. All the now space adventure.